Welcome to Resource on the Go, a podcast from the National Sexual Violence Resource Center on understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual abuse and assault. My name is Louis Marvin, and I'm the training specialist at the National Sexual Violence Resource Center. This podcast is part of our Male Survivors series. Today, Michael Munson joins me for part one of a two-part conversation on working with transgender men and transmasculine survivors of sexual assault. Michael is the executive director at Forge. Michael, thanks for being on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about about Forge and your work. Hey, thanks for um, having me as part of this series. Um, we've been talking about this for a long time, so it's kind of fun to actually be um, with you in this virtual space and, and recording. Um, so Forge is um, an old organization, at least I feel like we're an old organization, um, 27 years old. We are a national trans anti-violence nonprofit. Um, so those things all go together, the trans part, the anti-violence part. Um, and let me just give you like a little snippet of kind of where we came from and where we are right now, because I think it shapes a little bit about our work and how we work with folks now. So we were founded 27 years ago, which is um, kind of, it's not pre-internet, but it was like when people didn't have ready access to the internet. So we started out in that really grassroots sort of way, like many organizations do. And we were filling a need of like whatever and however people needed services and support. So it wasn't necessarily about sexual assault. It was about what kinds of resources do people need and how do we, how do we find those resources if they don't exist and how do we connect people to those resources? And at the beginning, we were very focused on trans men. Um, language is different then, and we'll talk a little bit about language, but um, that was our, our central focus. And then we've since expanded from that. Um, in 2003, we started noticing that the people that were coming to our support-based groups, we, we saw that at least like 50% of them were referencing sexual violence. So casually referencing, not you know, talking in depth. And it was like, wow, if at least half of these people are referencing sexual violence. This has got to be something, there's, there's got to be something going on here. Um, and so we were able to start doing some research around sexual violence within the trans community. And our research validated that um, in terms of, you know, the, the higher rates of sexual violence within trans communities. So within transmasculine communities and trans, trans feminine communities and non-binary communities, again, that at in 2003 wasn't the language that we used, but um, that's how we can recast it today. So that was in 2003. And since then, our work has really evolved to, to center on that connection between trans folks and anti-violence. And um, because of our um, funding through OVW, Office on Violence Against Women, we've predominantly focused on sexual assault, intimate partner violence, stalking, and then also uh, hate motivated crimes and how they interact with those other forms of crimes. So just to give you a picture, about 25% of our work is with uh, trans and non-binary survivors and loved ones. And again, that's national, so that means translating those things into um, virtual spaces. And then 75% of the work, um, so the majority of our work is doing training and technical assistance with victim service providers, with advocates, with all of those allied professionals. And that TA is traditional TA that, you know, is one-on-one -on -one support, webinars, conferences, 
prior to COVID, um, you know, webinar um, that we archive, that we've created ourselves, webinars for other people, publications, site visits, support policies, procedures, all of those things that most TA providers do. So that's that was a really long answer of, of who we are, but that's kind of the trajectory and where we're, we're landing right now. That's great, thanks. And yeah, I'm sure you could talk a lot more about, about all the things that you've, um seen and done along the way. I really appreciate that you highlighted um, both a grassroots and a national technical assistance perspective. I think that's that's really cool. And you um, have anticipated where, where we're going already in your commentary about how language has changed over the course of Forge's work. And um, so I just love to get to get right into that. We're diving into some some topics related to trans men and trans masculine folks today. And it seems that before we get there, we should talk a little bit more about um, gender just broadly. So um, spend some time talking about what to you is maleness and being a man and what is masculinity. And I think this is going to be much harder than talking about sexual assault or sexual violence. So um, it's a very hard question. And it's a hard question that I think that I could give you a different answer to today versus yesterday versus tomorrow. Um, and I certainly know that there is no one answer to this. So um, what I'm sharing is certainly my perspective of it and what we know other people think around you know, masculinity, maleness because it's a hard question. It's a broad question. So I think like to start out this question, I think that most of us know what gender is, right? We, we at least know what it is to ourselves, um, but we can't always define what it is. You know, I think most of us have an internal gender identity, and this is not about trans people or non-trans people. We all have that internal kind of compass of what our gender is, and we know it, but it's hard sometimes to figure out, well, what, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be masculine? So I think that, you know, when we look at things as a construct, like we could look at a lot of things as, as constructs, as social constructs, we might look at gender in terms of what did our parents or grandparents or guardians or aunts or uncles or pick the non-gendered or gendered person in our life teach us when we were growing up? What did we even hear maybe um, when we were still in the womb? What, you know, what messages kind of, came through like psychically and not to be all woo-woo, but you know, I, there, there are some messages, I think when a parent knows what gender they think their child is gonna be, um, we can look at maleness, masculinity and gender in terms of what toys are we given as kids? What kind of clothing are we given as kids? What messages get associated with those external objects from other people? And then how do we resonate with those objects that we're given? We don't always time, you know, we don't have the agency over picking our toys sometimes as kids, we're given things. Um, so how does that get reinforced? How does it feel dissonant to us in our gender? Um, and then what was affirmed in our behavior, our actions, our choices? What was not affirmed or what was even, you know, punished or um, chastised or, or talked negatively about, again, about our, behaviors, how we um, talked and walked and moved and what we played with. So I think all of those become kind of the core part of what makes up our early gender. And then when we start to have more awareness of being able to articulate it, I think I look at gender as relational. So we have a world that's really focused on the binary, that when we talk about masculinity, it's always in relation to femininity. 
and so there's like not there's not just gender as this big thing that is kind of free floating it's it's polarized and even if people end up kind of in the middle of that polarized it's still usually seen as a spectrum so a lot of trans communities are talking about gender not as a spectrum, but as a sphere or as something that you can not be on one end or another end, but could be, you know, not on an X and Y axis, or maybe it is on an X and Y axis, so that, you know, there's many different places that people can land. So again, I think it's really hard for us to not talk about masculinity without somehow referencing femininity. Um, and for a lot of people, there's a charge to masculinity or femininity. There's a, I, I like this or I don't like this. I feel more like this or I don't feel more like this. So, you know, I think it's hard for sometimes, sorry, it's hard for people sometimes to, to look at their own gender without having those external references of what other people think of gender. Um, so just a couple of quick reminders that like gender identity is what's on the inside, gender expression is what's on the outside. And so sometimes those things match for a lot of people. So non-trans people, cisgender people, those things usually match. And for trans folks, they oftentimes don't match. So what we were assigned at birth doesn't match our current gender identity and how we express our gender might be different or the same as what's what our gender identity is. So those are just kind of like the, these things to try to keep in mind as we move forward in talking about, well, what does maleness and masculinity mean? So it's a really slippery question again. So it's just, it's a big question, slippery question. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I think slippery is a great, is a great word. And I think, um, yeah, you started out by saying it's a hard question. You gave everyone a lot of great stuff to think about and then <laughs> and then ended by by using that word slippery. And I think that's 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 right. That's exactly right. Um, so I appreciate you uh, leading us through um, some of those some of those thoughts and kind of helping us get our bearings and thinking about about gender um, when we're thinking in the context of working with male survivors. So so then yeah thinking about how we you know this this larger series of conversations is about working with male survivors so so put into context for us um what it means to to talk about working with trans survivors of sexual assault when when we're talking about working with with male survivors um so that's another good question right and, and another really broad question and i think i want to acknowledge up front that this question um there are many different ways in how people view trans survivors within the constructs of working with male survivors or the other way around. So working with male survivors and how trans people fall into that. Um, so for some folks, both providers and survivors, um, I think that male survivorship is about those who were assigned male at birth and continue to identify as male. That's the traditional way that we think about male survivors. And more and more folks, both survivors and providers, are seeing that that's a limited way of looking at gender, and it excludes a lot of people that need services and support and healing. Um, so that's kind of the short answer to that, is that, you know, we, we can look at male survivors and we can look at an old model, or we can look at a more expansive model of who that includes. Yeah, and... Um address that expansiveness what might that what might that expansiveness look like or be like again knowing that, that that these are broad questions that um can't be summarized in like a three bullet point kind of answer but what are some things about that expansiveness that that you'd like for our listeners to think about 
Yeah, so again, we could talk for hours, right, about what expansiveness is, what trans communities are, what all of these pieces are. So if we circle back to that initial question about maleness and masculinity, and we can talk about gender and we can kind of um, get into this question about what is the expansiveness of communities? Um, once again, there's no monolithic trans community. Um, I might have a very different view of what trans communities are versus you versus somebody else. And there's a lot of folks that want to limit who the trans community includes. And that might be for their own process of self-identification. It might be who they find alliance with or resonance with. And at Forge, we have a really, really broad definition of who's kind of in the community and who's, well, we don't really have anybody who's not, but, you know, in terms of like who's in. So we have a really expansive view. So let me share with you a couple of things that um, I often talk about when we train, which is like, well, who is in that expansive community? And what are the types of people that are in that community? And so we generally share things like that community, our community is made up of folks that are gender nonconforming. So folks that may express their gender in ways that are not like John Wayne or Marilyn Monroe. They might express something um, very differently with how they um, move through the world. Trans folks can include those folks that transition from one point to another point. And that might be from male to female, female to male, or male or female to something else in that gender spectrum. Um, it might include people who are questioning their gender or exploring what that means. It might be people that don't fit in the binary, that don't fit on that male or female spectrum, but someplace else on the X or Y axis, whichever one of those that is. Um, we're also seeing gender in, in ways that it includes people that are gender conforming. So not gender non-conforming, but gender conforming, but have a trans history includes folks that are multiply gendered. So that could be living parts of their life in one gender, parts of their life in another gender. It could be embodying more than one gender within themselves. And at Forge, we include family, friends, and allies because we know that when people are experiencing sexual violence or intimate partner violence, that it impacts those folks around that trans person. So the, the people that, that love and care for trans people, we view as part of of that community. So I may have gotten a little bit off track. So let me let me circle back if I can give you an even longer answer. Um, so when we look at people's gender identity, it might change over time. Um, their gender expression might change over time. How people perceive their gender might change over time. People might hold on to parts of their past or disavow some parts of their past. And so one of the things that I was thinking about before we, we talked today was, I think the popular culture has picked up on the word dead naming. And it's a, a phrase that has become kind of both one of the cool things that people can acknowledge and also something that really is hurtful to people in, in many different ways. So um, dead naming is basically using a person's name prior to when they transitioned or a name that they don't use anymore. And it's interesting that if we look at trans folks, and this really relates to when we look at male survivorship, the gender trajectory of people. Um, so when we look at dead naming, some people really like claiming the gender that they were assigned at birth and, and acknowledging that part of their history. 
whereas other people view it as dead naming and they want to kind of remove that part of their life. So when we look at people who want to embrace their childhood, which might include a name that's different than what they're using right now, versus other people who want to kind of cut that part of their life out, that's going to really impact how they look at their survivorship, what therapy looks like, what support groups look like. Because if people are kind of cutting off or including their childhood when abuse might have happened, it's going to change how they heal. Yeah, thank you. And I know that um, in this conversation, I've been using the language of trans men and trans masculine folks, um, or transgender men and trans masculine folks. And we've had conversations about about that language too. So, so address that language. What's significant about um, about bringing that language of trans men and trans masculine folks into the context of talking about male survivors? Yeah, great question. Um, so again, this is another bit and piece that is complicated and it changes rapidly. So when we look at language, um, you know, again, I, I mentioned that Forge is 27 years old. Um, so we have heard and seen the evolution of language. So, um, you know, in our, in our notes, because we predominantly communicated by email, you know, I noticed that you separated out trans and men. Well, it used to be trans men was one singular word rather than an adjective describing men. So like, that's like one piece of how it's it's trained. It, it's changed over time. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I wanted to share, and, and this is a different format than when we do training in technical assistance. So it, I feel like it allows me to, to share um, maybe a little bit of personal story in here where I would normally not. Um, when I'm training, I'm training because I know what I'm talking about, about sexual assault and trans folks. And my identity is not important to that conversation. Um, but for this question, I wanted to share that, you know, I am a, a person of trans history. I am someone who was assigned female at birth. And when I came out almost 30 years ago, our language was really different. Um, you know, right now I look like um, a big, burly, um, bearded guy that either gets perceived as a biker or a very femme kind of Nelly gay man. Depending on what situation I'm in, I'm, I get perceived as those things. But 30 years ago, we had language that was F to M. It was female to male. And now people, even within you know, my community, if I use that language, will get really aggressive and say, you can't use that language. That's an offensive language. Even though I still resonate with that language because that was kind of my mother tongue. That was kind of what I was born into as a trans person. So my affirmed language is being impacted by other people who think that other language is right or more right. So, you know, that's kind of a preface, it's a longer preface to what language do people use now? And some people will really resonate with the language of trans men, either put together as one word or separated as two words. Um, others will identify as transmasculine um, and not wanna claim the word men or man even if they're living in the world and others see them as a man, but that word may not feel comfortable or good to them. So just to give folks an idea of some of the other words that people might be using. So trans men, trans man are, you know, common words right now. Transmasculine is common. We hear um, in some communities, language of masculine of center. So again, that goes back to, are we talking about a spectrum or a sphere of gender? And as someone, if we look at a spectrum, are they, you know, kind of to the right of or to the left of that midpoint. 
a lot of non-binary folks are using AFAB or AMAB, so assigned female at birth, assigned male at birth. So they're not wanting to claim a man or a woman identity, but non-binary, and then it shows their gender vector. We can look at um, communities of color, communities of different places in, in geography, and we can hear words like stud or aggressive. And when we're talking about sexual assault, someone's identity as an aggressive becomes very dissonant for us because we think of that as a, a behavior rather than an identity. But within transmasculine communities, both stud and aggressive within especially black and Latinx communities are, are identities of transmasculinity. Um, we can also hear things like drag king. And you know, again, that can be a really controversial subject, but that is an identity for, for some folks. We also hear things like new man, um, so N-E-W man, or man of trans history, or man of trans experience, um, or formerly trans. So like all of those things might be how somebody describes themselves, or just man with no preface of anything. Um, and I also want to just kind of branch a little teeny bit into when we're talking about male survivors, we might be talking about folks who were assigned male at birth and live more femininely. So their sexual assault may have happened when they were living or perceived as, as men. So those folks may be in a different category of language. Um, and then there are also folks, again, from maybe different um, cultural backgrounds, like two-spirit folks, that may fit somewhere in our discussion of this broad topic, or even radical fairies, um, the kind of gay male culture that embraces a lot of femininity, but folks are usually very male identified, even within that feminine identity. So that's a really long answer, and a lot of words, and those are just a fraction of the words and the language that people might be using. Yeah, yeah, thanks. And I think that um, maybe to put a I don't know to put a button on it if if that's the right language, but <laughs> to to say that um, there are lots of words using uh, using language like male survivors is complicated. Um, using any language about people's identities and and being um, and their experience with gender is complicated. And I know that um, a a way of thinking about um, labels and terms and identities that I have learned from Forge is by thinking of the terms paradox. Um, which if maybe you'll allow me to say what I think the term's paradox is, and then you can <laughs> you can fill in what I missed, but but this idea that terms are essential and terms are meaningless, essential in the sense of as a service provider, as a human being, um, recognizing and using the words that somebody wants you to use for them is just about basic respect, um, and terms are meaningless in the sense of those terms also don't tell you everything you need to know about a person. Did I, what did I, how did I do with that, that Michael? fantastic. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you. Perfect. Yeah. And it's a concept that we use a lot, and you know, it's 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 a perfect way of saying we need to respect folks, and they those terms may not tell us what we need to know to help you know serve people or to to be with them. Yeah, perfect, good job. Well, thank you, and thank you for that that knowledge even before the context of this podcast, right? <laughs> um, so, well, that's actually a really great um, transition into thinking about. Um, reactions to sexual violence. And we're going to do a part two to this conversation that's really more about services and advocacy. Um, but before we do that, I just want to talk about reactions to sexual violence that may be especially relevant to trans men and transmasculine people. So if, for example, a trans man 
um, who is always told growing up that he is a girl, you know, incorrectly, and that, um, that sexual assault is something that happens to girls and women, um, what issues around those messages and that socialization might come up for him? We hear so often from survivors, trans, trans masculine survivors, trans men who really, really believe what you just said, that sexual assault is something that happens to girls and women. And if they are a real man, um, it won't happen to them. Or if they were a real man, it won't happen to them. And this is a huge barrier, and we'll talk more about it in, in part two of kind of how that has some serious service implications. Um, you know, I, I, in thinking about this this question, I mean, it's something that we we encounter a lot. So we see sometimes that people transition to male in part because they believe that they'll be safer. So not not solely in you know because of that, but if they're kind of wavering between, am I a non-binary person? Am I gender fluid? Or do I want to transition to male? A lot of people that have that strong belief that sexual assault happens to girls and women really believe that they'll be safer as, as men. And that's a really dangerous place to be, I think, because it really, um, you know, a lot of times it ends up not being true. Um, you know, we know that a lot of times people that experience sexual assault as children end up being sexually assaulted as, as adults or having other forms of violence as adults. And, and that seems to be very true within trans communities as well as non-trans communities. So, you know, the belief that it won't happen as an adult if they're living as male is, you know, really a fallacy. And again, it kind of cuts off what did happen to them as children. Um, you know, I think that when we look at the folks that were sexually assaulted or abused as children and the world saw them as, as female or as a girl, they oftentimes are struggling to find a path to healing. And the therapists and providers working with them may feel really challenged in how to work with them. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before about like the dead naming and who embraces their past versus pushes their past away. And so, you know, there's a, there's a challenge for both service providers and for that trans person of, of how do we talk about, how do we work with sexual assault experiences and healing when some people want to talk about their, their life that might've been perceived as a different gender when they were living as a different gender um, versus where they are right now. So I think that there's a big challenge with, with where that disconnect is or where that connection is for folks. Um, I also wanted to note that, again, I know we're talking about male survivors and what messages people get, but when we look at folks that were assigned male at birth and who are now living as female or as trans feminine or something along that, that spectrum, they receive the same messages, right? Because we're, we're all receiving the same messages in our society. We're, we're getting the message that it's girls and women who are abused or assaulted and men who are the, the perpetrators. And if that's the message that trans women are getting as well, they may not be able to encompass what happened to them as a child, as abuse, because they might've been perceived as a boy or being interacted with as a boy. And so that might not have been perceived as sexual assault. And so they're bringing that into their adulthood, into their female adulthood, and how does that get healed or resolved? So when we look at kind of both ends of where people are coming from and going to in their gender, 
there's a lot of healing implications for what they were told, which is pretty much the dominant narrative versus what they were, what and how they were living when abuse happened or assault happened and what gender they're living in now, whether it's binary gender or non-binary gender. So, it, you know, it's a complicated place, right? To be of, of where does healing happen? What messages are getting told? What do people take in terms of actions around it? Um, and just one more comment I think about the trans women, which I know is, is seems like it, it veers off of trans men, but I think it, it's part of it. There are a lot of trans women who are assaulted as, as women in adulthood that believe it affirms their, their gender identity as women because they believe that sexual assault happens to women. So again, what is, what's happening when that messaging goes out? And how do they heal from that um, if they believe in that gender binary? So again, you know, that, that kind of shifts us away from trans men, but I think it's part of that in terms of how do people heal? What pieces of themselves do they need to bring forward? And masculinity for trans women might be a piece that needs to get brought forward in their healing. Just like for trans men, their, their life when being perceived as a girl or a woman might need to come forward even if they're they're living and being and affirmed as men now? Long answer. Yeah, so it, I mean, it, I think it even sounds to me like part of what you're saying is that um, the gender binary or the idea that what we're assigned as birth, the wrong idea that what we're assigned as birth is, is who we you know, really are in some sort of essential way um, is part of violence. Um, in its own right, and then is also wrapped up in sexual violence um, that have a lot of implications for for healing. Um, I know that we um, have also talked about um, another another language issue around the idea of um, of passing. So, if that's if that's language that maybe listeners have um, have heard of, could you help kind of frame that and? Um, connect it a little bit to to this idea of reactions to sexual violence. Yeah, totally. Um, and again, you know, all of these questions are complicated, right? And all of these questions are, um, all these topics have have people that have strong feelings about them. So, kind of presenting in a in a neutral way, just acknowledging that passing as a word is really charged for some people, and it's either embraced or really pushed away both within trans communities as well as um, within provider circles. So just for folks that may not be familiar with what passing tends to mean, um, it's almost always linked to a binary. So people are said, are, are you passing as a woman? Are you passing as a man? So it's linked to, are you um, being perceived as your affirmed gender? Or are people seeing you as trans or your, your prior gender or another gender? So passing is something that really plays a role when we look at survivorship spaces. So if a space is created for male survivors, for example, like in a group setting or a retreat or even a program, um, you know, like schools talk about um, harm reduction and they pull the boys in one group and the girls in another group. When we talk about passing, a lot of times what people look like is where they get assigned to a group. Now, that's not a good way of dividing people up in my opinion, but that is oftentimes what happens. And it happens sometimes when people are not um, knowing yet or expressing what their gender is. So like the boys and girls that are in, um, you know, 
gender or sex ed or healthy relationship ed or whatever is happening in grade school, if that kid is not out as trans or in their affirmed gender, what messages are they hearing? And they're hearing different messages if they're in the boys group versus the girls group, rather than just having a group that talks about what healthy relationships are or what healthy consent is or any of those things. So when we look at passing, we, we clump people based on what we as external people are seeing someone's gender as. And I think this, this kind of relates to the whole concept of why do we talk about male survivors, right? Why do we talk about female survivors? Actually, we don't really talk about female survivors. We, we tend to think about survivors as female, right? It's like, it's, it's an assumed thing, unless if we say male survivors. And that leaves out so many, so many, so many different people that don't fit into either of those things. So um, not to, to kind of mess up the whole purpose of the, the series, right, on, on male survivorship, but it does complicate things for folks that don't fit within that, um, whether it's as an adult or as a child. So obviously, you know, you can hear my opinions about how this is not necessarily a great way of looking at the world because it doesn't always serve people in ways that are affirming to them. So, you know, when we look at survivorships and about like, you know, what should be allowed or what should be encouraged, you know, I'm hopeful that that victim service providers in particular want to empower people, want to give people control and agency over who they are, to define their own narrative, and to affirm what their identity is, what their language is, what their experiences are, and what their healing is. So, you know, I think we need to look at all of that when we're looking at how do we how do we explore male survivorship and how trans folks fit into that. Definitely, um, Michael, you're not ruining or interrupting or whatever language you used. Um, <laughs> the the point of the series, you're complicating it in a really great way that I really appreciate. Um, and you're leaving us on this great note of thinking about um, uh, support groups and advocacy that we're really going to delve into in the next part of our conversation. So thank you so much for, for joining us today. And we invite listeners to, to check out part two of this conversation when we'll focus more on providing services to transgender men and transmasculine survivors of sexual assault. We also invite listeners to learn more about working with male survivors by checking out the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening to this episode of Resource on the Go. For more resources and information about understanding, responding to, and preventing sexual assault, visit our website at www.nsvrc.org. You can also get in touch with us by emailing resources at nsvrc.org.